All right, good morning, everyone. That's what I'm talking about. The, uh, I love that song. There's no rival, no equal to Christ. And I, I want y'all to know, since Monty mentioned my name and the mission ops, that there is no rival to my shrimp bulls. <laughs> His statement was a statement of heresy. <laughs> and uh, uh, just want to clear the air this morning. So y'all pray for me and Monty as we work that doctrine out there. So. <laughs> Well, turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Here's the reality. This passage this morning is a remarkable passage. It's not remarkable because it's so profound theologically. It's remarkable because it's so timely and so relevant and so weighty in the sense that if you listen carefully this morning... I believe it will touch a nerve in you that maybe hasn't been touched in a while or forever. It is an explanation from our Heavenly Father about how he uses godly discipline in our lives that produces endurance to finish strong in our spiritual faith race. It helps us to understand, if you would, suffering. And who doesn't need help for that? I mean, if you're not awake yet, you're awake now. It is a lens for all of our suffering, whether self-inflicted, other-inflicted, or world-inflicted. Here's how John Piper described this text. He said, Hebrews 12, 1 through 11 is not a feel-good text about how to make the best of your troubles or how God makes the best of your troubles. It is a massive statement about the gracious sovereignty of God over the evil that befalls his people. And the big if is, will you believe it? Will you accept the mystery of God's providence in the pain of your life and be trained by it for the sake of holiness and peace and righteousness and life? Or will you kick against this passage and demand, demand in this season of suffering that you're in, that God give you a greater and clearer account of himself than he does in this text? So a great question to put in our minds this morning is, so will you and I actually believe what God's word says to us this morning? In addition, Hebrews 12, 1 through 11, gives us a picture, if you would, of the Christian life. There's a lot of those metaphors in the Bible, boxing, wrestling, farming. And this morning, we see the imagery where we are athletes running a race. And then lastly, I think it screams to us that God's value system is not the same as our value system, where we cherish and value a pain-free and comfortable life, and God in turn values genuine life change, no matter the cost of what it takes for him to weave that change into the life of his people. So to do that, To see what it says this morning, to see what it means to endure and run the faith race well and to finish strong, we're going to look at three things in your notes. We're going to run in his steps, 
We're going to embrace a painful gift, and we're going to anticipate the beautiful benefits. We'll spend a little bit more time in verses 1 through 4 as it lays the foundation. So let me read those verses to us this morning. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now, obviously, as we look at that passage, we see the word therefore, and therefore directs us back to the previous chapter, chapter 11, where the Old Testament saints are called now the great cloud of witnesses. Uh, it is an encouragement for the Hebrews and for us to remember that those face, those uh, people ran a faith race we saw them run it. We, we've been going over that for weeks. And you and I are part of the same faith race as they were. The idea here is the writer wants to encourage us to run this race like they did. We know the faith race is difficult. It's hard work. And it's always motivating, whether it's a faith race or anything, to know there are those of you there are others who have done something that you're trying to do, is it not? I remember being in seminary, being a PE major, and had friends telling me that they had gone through seminary. If I can do it, you can do it. It was hard to believe, but it happened. There's some clarity here we need to, to bring, and, and that is some people see these great cloud of witnesses, these Old Testament saints that phrase, if you would, is a metaphor as the Old Testament saints in the stadium looking down upon us while we run the race, cheering us on, if you would. And for sure, when people cheer us on, uh, that's a great encouragement. It, it, I played before 75,000 people when I was in college playing football, and I played before 7,500 it was a lot more exciting to play in front of 75,000, I can assure you. And I love this idea in my head of old Moses standing there going, go get him, Jeffro, run, big dog. <laughs> but I actually think, and the vast majority of scholars do too, that it's the opposite. Instead of them looking at us, we're actually looking at them that their enduring, well-finished faith race bears witness to us. Because of that, we have these faith heroes, if you would, showing us and testifying to us the life of faith, that it was worth it to live their life in that way. Their lives shout to us, you can make it. I think it's why it's so crucial. If we're going to run this race well, I can think of, besides the Bible, nothing better to read than Christian biographies. In some ways, that's what chapter 11 was. It was many biographies of these Old Testament saints. 
I, I wrote down three that have been great encouragement to me over the years when I felt like quitting. And I have felt like quitting a lot. Anybody else? Yeah, I want to hit eject. And then I remember Jesus' words to Peter. Where else are you going to go, bro? Only, only me do I have words of eternal life. Certainly, it felt like quitting. I love these Christian biographies. Jim Elliott, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. I teared up yesterday thinking of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Some of the biographies of people who have finished well in the midst of death. So the bios in chapter 11 testify of a life well lived for the glory of God. And then the writer tells us, now, Hebrew Christians, Fellowship Bible Church folks, it's our time to run. It's why the main clause in those first four verses is, let us run the race set before us. Notice there that the writer actually uses the word let us. He includes himself. Let us run. Let the Old Testament saints run. The Hebrew Christians ran. The writer runs. Every Christian runs. And you and I are to run as well. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain that prize. This word race, the root word, is agony. How many of you ever run a marathon or a half marathon? What did it feel like? Agony. Right. That was, I gave you the, the answer first. You said something else. Okay. Yeah, it's painful. The Christian life is a difficult race. The starting line is when you and I come to Christ. And the finish line is when you and I take our last breath here on earth. Many have called the Christian life a marathon, not a sprint. Nod your head with that one. The problem with this Christian marathon race we're in is it's so dang daily. Every single day. Every single moment. When I was playing football and training like a maniac, we actually had days off. Rest. There's no such thing. There's no scripture that gives us the ability to hit eject for a few days or weeks or months. Paul's response to those who thought the Christian life was a sprint is in Galatians 5. He says to them, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? It's an endurance race. And many of us or many of those who forget that do not finish well. They start well, but they finish poorly. But our writer also tells us the other crucial elements, if you would, in these first four verses of running this race well. Verse 1, he uses the phrase to lay aside every weight. I don't know if you know, but in the ancient Greek athletic Olympic type games, they would wear a robe as they entered the stadium. And if they were in a racing event on foot, 
they would take off the robe and run with nothing on. Literally, do your research. I'll leave it there, okay? <laughs> Many scholars and most scholars say every weight, this phrase here, is not necessarily sins, but things that in no way help you to run the faith race. These are things that may not be sinful. They can maybe be certainly good at times, but there are things that have gotten a hold of you and I in such a way that they hinder us spiritually, they distract us, they sap our energy, but they don't help us run well. I could give you a long list of those. Probably one of my most recent weights that I've had to lay aside is literally my own body weight. Uh, a year and a half ago, after Christmas, I had blossomed. That's one way to put it. <laughs> I had blossomed uh, to my heaviest point ever, and I wasn't feeling good. And a year earlier, I had gone through a blood clot and was on blood clotting medicine. And it's as if the Lord brought this said, Jeff, if you're going to run the race well, if you're going to finish strong, you got to have energy. And you're going to have to change some things. And so I've changed, I did change my diet for the most part. Uh, I still am very capable of sliding backwards <laughs> in case any of you see me eat a cheeseburger. But I think that's what he's talking about there. And so you got to ask yourself, what are the things that are distracting me, hindering me from running well? He also uses the phrase, and sin. Lay aside every weight and sin. Now, I want you to imagine that ancient runner that I mentioned walking to the stadium. He has his robe on, if you would. Instead of taking it off, he tries to run the race in his robe. He trips in it, falls down. He can't run, and he gets up and comes to this crazy conclusion, I guess I'm just not a runner. So he quits. That's how many of us can approach the Christian life. As we lay aside our sins, it, it not only means to stop them, because it is difficult to stop unless you do something very crucial, and that is to tell someone else. To ask for help. Our secret sins have this incredible power over us that we don't understand unless we begin to be honest and transparent about these kind of sins. That's what laying aside means, to get serious about them. I remember early in our marriage, I knew that rage would hinder me and cripple my faith race. And I remember clearly the first time I became aware that I had a problem. I remember those early conversations with older, wiser men. It felt like I would never come out of that hole. I had to admit it. I had to tell others. I had to ask for help. And it's not a one-time event. It's a lifetime of laying aside the sin which clings closely. These repeatable, habitual, addictive sins. And the list is endless, so I'm not even going to touch those. You know what yours are. We all have them. 
all the way from legalism and self-righteousness to sexual perversion. We have things that we must lay aside and that one of the first steps is to confess to God and to each other. Serious runners get rid of everything that hinders that hinders them from the race. Joelle and I and Jenna this weekend were watching because my daughter runs track in college, and so we were watching. Even some of her teammates run in the national championships, NCAA championships in Oregon, and not one of them had a robe on. <laughs> not one of them had jeans on, right? Verse 1 also tells us the race, uses this phrase, the race that is set before us. Meaning the course is already marked out for us. God has established the path we are to run. There are rules in this race. We can't just run wherever we want and whenever we want and however we want. If you do a little sports research, the the sports annuals are full of those people who broke the rules and were disqualified or stripped of their medals. Think Lance Armstrong. If you don't lay aside your sin, it will eventually come out just like Lance's did. That's why we confess early and often, and you know this to be true. It is easier to pull a weed out of the ground than uproot an oak tree that has gone untouched for years. In verse 2, the writer has just told us that what distracts us slows us down. And here's what he does. Now he gives us something to focus on. Literally, this phrase in verse 2 says, look away from the distractions. It doesn't say distractions, but it says, look away from, and you fill in the blank, whatever your distraction is. Look away from that and fix your gaze upon Christ. The idea comes, is in connection with the old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. It's as if our writer has brought his very best witness who ran the race, who ran the race perfectly, who now stands at the finish line as the, as the writer tells us in these verses the originator of our faith, the champion and perfecter of our faith, and says, run like him. Watch him. Keep your eyes on him. Draw near to him. Be with him. Talk to him. Stay right there. It's amazing. He said he did it for the joy set before him. Joy is simply the motivation to endure now to now to abstain to obtain something better later. And for Jesus, our writer tells us is that he would sit at the right hand of the Father on the throne of God. That's what was motivating him, along with bringing you and I into his family. And then verses three and four, the writer switches from this this fix your eyes on Jesus, to the word consider. A few weeks ago, we saw this word. Another way to put it is to calculate. Or as you fix your eyes on Jesus, 
consider or think about him by way of comparison with yourself. Now, it's never great to compare with each other in terms of suffering and pain, and, but the writers here has given us permission to compare our suffering and pain with that of Jesus. He is saying compare Jesus' and Jesus's endurance with suffering compared to your endurance with suffering. Here's how Peter put it in 1 Peter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. Our writer is telling us, so if you and I think we are mistreated because of the gospel, compare it to the gut-wrenching hostility Christ endured. The unjust trials, the mockery, the Son of God upholding the world by the word of his might as the men he created beat him. The writer, in some ways, is saying, you readers need perspective. <laughs> the back half of verse 3 tells us that you and I will not, the reason is, so you and I will not grow weary or faint-hearted. This comparison with Christ of what we are going through compared to what he went through not only gives us perspective, but it gives us this intimate connection with Christ, which is then the fuel we need to keep running. He is the one that will sustain us. He understands. He's been there. He knows what I'm going through. He's some way telling his original readers, yes, I know you've had your property taken. I know that you are isolated from your friends and family, and they have verbally abused you and threatened you, and you feel alone. And I want to tell you, more, more persecution is coming, but you have not shed any blood yet. The original hearers of Hebrews, they're thinking, this is not what I signed up for. Anybody else felt that? <laughs> Our writer is saying, cheer up. It could be a lot worse. Here's what I know to be true. Many times we can respond in a way of suffering and pain that says, if God loved me, this stuff would not be happening to me. But verses 5 through 11 tells us that it's happening to us because God actually does love us. Let me read verses 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one in whom he loves, and he chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons or daughters. 
Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So he starts off with a question there. It's a rhetorical question. And have you forgotten the exhortation or encouragement that addresses you as sons? The answer is what? Yes. <laughs> yes, they have forgotten. Nearly 250 times in the Bible, it uses the word to God's people, remember. Because you and I and every person that's ever lived on this earth who's known Christ, they have a gift. It is the gift of forgetfulness. And you know it. God teaches, we forget. God speaks, we forget. God convicts, we forget. Our writer is saying God is in a continual, if you would, conversation with his people through the scriptures. And he has told you in many times and in many ways that you are his children, that you are his sons and daughters. How many of you have heard that from a sermon or from reading the scriptures? Yeah. And the first place we go is God must not love me. Look what I'm going through. So the writer quotes to them a familiar Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, that says, don't take lightly the discipline of the Lord, because when you do, you are failing to process our sufferings through the lens of God's word. Don't disregard the discipline from me, God is saying to them, to you, because it is my gift to you, a painful gift. A strange minister, if you would, to train you, to instruct you, to correct you, to educate you, to equip you, and to grow you as my sons and daughters. Man, we love these kind of verses as parents when it comes to our children. Proverbs 22, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a what? Child, how do you get it out of him? You discipline him. We could put it like this. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of God's people. How do you get it out of them? You discipline them. And so the discipline of God begins at the moment you and I are saved. And it comes in the form of circumstances. As I said earlier, self-inflicted. Other inflicted, world inflicted, and it is God's work in our lives. So John Piper puts it again. What adversaries do you do to you out of sinful hostility? God is doing out of fatherly discipline. Remember Joseph, what man intended for evil, God calls use for good. God is not a passive observer while others and Satan beat you up. Not one thing happens to us that falls outside of God's fatherly discipline for us. And yes, sometimes it's because of my sin and your sin. But not all the time. But that can be the first place. What have I done? You ever been there? What, what, I must have done something. But no doubt... It is God's training us to be faithful and obedient children. 
There's no doubt either that Christianity, part of what it is, is a set of doctrines that you and I believe, a set of truths. But it is way more than that. It is God's activity at work in our lives to conform us into his image. He is never idle. He never sleeps. He never slunders. He slunders. He does slunder, but he doesn't slumber. Remember what Jesus said, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. It is as normal as breathing. It is Christianity 101. Verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Again, the Lord is never idle. Our Heavenly Father, if you put it this way, spanks us. He spanks his children. We are sons and daughters. The one thing I don't do is I don't spank other people's kids, right? But I, do, I did spank mine. I want to I make a note here that God does not punish his children. This is so crucial to understanding the discipline of God. Punishment is punitive. God the Father punished the Lord Jesus, his own son. So therefore, he doesn't punish you and I. He disciplines us out of love to turn us into this family resemblance that we would resemble him, respond like him, think like him, love like him. It's always corrective and instructive how crucial that is for us to embrace God's discipline. It is painful, yes. One of the reasons it's so hard because you and I so cherish a pain-free life I want us to think clearly here. Don't ask the question anymore, God, do you love me? If you're in Christ. God says pain is a gift from me. You can't do without it if you want to endure faithfully and run the faith race well. It's because I love you that I'm disciplining you. And then verse 7 literally says, for discipline endure is an application from the Proverbs text that was right before it. It is a command. The point here is to endure faithfully in order to receive an education from God in what it means to run the faith race. To those of us who are running and have not quit, have you changed from 10 years ago? Yes, you're getting an education at year four. I was ready to quit at Fellowship Bible Church. At year four at Clemson, I was ready to quit. I was going to go work on dogs and try to be a veterinarian because I didn't have to work with people anymore. Problem was, I was a people. And I wasn't smart enough to be a vet. If you drop out of school, you won't get an education and it will greatly affect your life. The same here, endure through all the discipline and you will receive a PhD in Christ. As a man who is about to turn 59, I can tell you there have been pain and, and just confusion and, and 
weeping and gnashing of teeth, my wife's face with me full with mascara. We are not the same because of that. When we understand this, it changes our perspective on all that is happening around us all the time. And then verse 8 says, if there is no discipline in your life, you are not a child of God. The irony is that people who have the most pain-free life think they're the most blessed. (laughs) They're not. Verse 9 illustrates that earthly fathers discipline you and I. And we didn't like it, but upon reflection upon it, maybe years later, you now see it was good for you. Though your earthly father was imperfect, your heavenly father now disciplines disciplines you who is perfect. So the writer is saying, embrace it. They're better than your earthly father. See it clearly. Submit to it. Because here's what happens when we resist it. God says, you know what? He's a hard case to crack. So I'm just going to pause there, and I'm going to move on to someone else and let him be. No, for the most part, when you're his son, he keeps coming. He ramps it up, does he not? Because he's committed for you to be like him. So we got run in his steps, embrace a painful gift, and then we have... Anticipate the beautiful benefits. Look at the verses 10 and 11, if you would. It says, For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And everyone said, Amen. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So here, the writer of Hebrews makes very clear the goal or the benefits of our father's discipline. In verse 10, when it says, when our earthly father disciplines us, it was for correction. It was for instruction, for the here and now, if you would, for the temporal and for this life. And and they did so, he says, what it seemed best to them. They certainly were imperfect. Uh, That's me. That's every dad, every parent. There's no perfect parent. I, I know, certainly, I had too much anger in my parenting. Sometimes I was too aggressive, too passive, not enough conversation from the heart as I'm learning to parent. I remember sometimes I just felt paralyzed. I remember Jenna being on a, uh, uh, out with the gals one night, and I had the boys, and they were small, and they're upstairs, and I'm sitting down to read my USA Today before there was internet, and I heard a loud thump, sound like Santa Claus came through the roof, if you believe in Santa Claus, right? And then I heard bloody murder screaming, and I ran up the stairs. I bust open their room, and it's dark. I turn on the light, and Josh and Jess are standing there. And I said, what happened? They said, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) And Jay is the one screaming, four years old, face down on the floor. And I roll him over, and after several minutes, I get him to say, Josh and Jess said, if I prayed to Jesus, I could fly. (laughs) 
And he was, he had said, Lord Jesus, help me fly by faith and came off of the top bunk bed. Now, what do you do? Part of me wanted to kill him. And part of me was laughing so hard, I couldn't breathe. So I just said, go back to bed, and we did nothing. <laughs> but as dads, we are certainly trying to make our children grow up and be responsible, mature adults, are we not? Even when we do it wrong. In contrast, God's discipline to us has this ultimate benefit in mind, preparing us for eternity, to enter into his presence. Think Moses, 40 years in the desert, to remake who he was, to then use him. Discipline us in a way that is preparing us to cross the finish line strong. And you can't state the benefit any clearer than what it says in verse 10, that we may share in his holiness. What's the old phrase around marriage? Marriage is not to make you happy, but make you holy. God's discipline is fueled by his passion for you and I to resemble him, look like him, think like him, respond like him. God is for sure committed to our holiness above our comfort, health, and anything else. The writer of Hebrews has already told us something profound. It says that Jesus learned through pain and what? Suffering. If he did, how will we not the pain of discipline and suffering is way more effective and instructive than blessings and prosperity. I want you to think about when you have grown the most, when you have drawn near to the Lord Jesus, you could not breathe, you could not go to work, you could not engage people unless you met with Christ through his word and with brothers and sisters. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. It is his megaphone to arouse a hard heart, to arouse a deaf people, if you would, that he loves so much. And then in verse 11, as we close up, we know it's natural for us won't to want the pain of discipline to be over. But it says to those who submit to it, to those who are instructed by it, to those who are educated by it, to those who are corrected, to those who have been trained by it, it will yield what every one of us want, peace and righteousness. No pain, no gain. Is true spiritually, just like it is physically. In John 15, Jesus tells us about this discipline. It's called pruning. Go read John 15. It's needed. It's necessary. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. 
The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Folks, that's where you and I have to get. It is good for me that I was afflicted. And if you're old enough and been walking with Christ, you can look back as I have and see every single thing through the lens of a kind and merciful God who would not let me stay the same. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. What a gift. This week, I literally was studying this passage. And this is our so what. I was studying this passage, have my books out, my text on the screen. And I get a phone call from a longtime friend who lives out of state. Hadn't talked to him in a while. And he said, man, you got a few minutes. I got a lot of, I got some heavy things to share with you. And he began to share with me some sins that he had been caught in, had been exposed, had had been surfaced, and others around him knew, grievous sins. He was weeping. And as I listened to him, my response was, because he got caught early, early in the process. And I said, God is so kind. And I read him this text. (laughs) Tears were running down my face. I could hear him sniffling in the background. God is so kind to discipline us. Mercy. Grace. I want you to ask the question this morning. Profound questions. Am I submitting to the disciplined circumstances that God is using in my life to make me more like his son? Do I even know what they are? Who do I need to go to to tell, to lay aside the sin that so cripples me spiritually? Who do I need to go to? Or what do I need to do to lay aside the weight These things that distract me from your TV to your phone to whatever because it hinders you in the race. Take a minute to ask those questions and make some very specific applications.
stand with me if you would this morning. Pray in your hearts with me, Lord Jesus, we come to you. And we so need your pruning in our life, your discipline in our life. You waste nothing. We're so bent, unlike you, that we need reshaping and reforming and renewing. And so, Lord, I pray you would give us a new set of eyes, if you would, a set of eyes that looks through the lens of your word that tells us we are loved and accepted and beloved because we are your sons and daughters. So the circumstances that you allow in our lives are to be used by you for our reforming into the image of Christ. Help us to get that. We thank you for the gospel that says you do not punish your children. (laughs) You're not a punitive father. You're not an imperfect father. You're a perfect one, and you punish your own son so that you could become our father. Help us to connect those dots. And Lord, lastly, I just want to pray for a spirit of transparency to flow through this body where it is a safe place to confess sins, to receive correction and instruction, to make us teachable, to give us an education in Christ. We love you. We're grateful for your your kind but painful mercy. (laughs) You are a strange minister, but you are a good minister. And we love you, and we ask that in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen.